Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Okay, let's get the show on the road. Hello and welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them or most of the time not even included in them. My name is Annie and across from me is Phoebe and she's nodding curiously. Mm, it's great for a, um, you know, a non-visual medium for me. <laughs> <laughs> Quite animated. It's working well. All, all you need to know is she's, she agrees with what I'm saying. Furiously agreeing. Furiously, Furiously. nodding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've decided that this season we're not going to get too much into the catch-ups because we know you're here for the histories and the stories and um, not our stories. But I was saying that I spent a lovely weekend away in a beautiful beach house pretending to be rich and famous. Mm-hmm. I hope you wore dark glasses and like a scarf to be all mysterious as well. <laughs> yes, I didn't want to get noted, uh, recognised mm. in, uh, in the streets of Wye River. Mm. If you're ever in Victoria, go and check it out. It's a beautiful part of the world. It really is. It's chilly this time of the year but beautiful nonetheless. It was chilly and, you know, we had um, lots of wildlife, mm-hmm. and, uh, lots of cockatoos, very, very friendly cockatoos. Look at you, David Attenborough. And wallabies. <laughs> with wallabies. Didn't see any koalas though. It is koala country, but didn't see any koalas. But um, there you go. I do have um, a little reco oh. that I thought some of our chick historians might like to listen to. It is another podcast. Yes. Clearly listen to us first. Uh, it is called Secrets We Keep. And it is, have you heard of it? It's only just started. Two episodes are out. No. Um, and it's it really centers. It's an Australian story. It centers around uh, forced adoption during the um, really the forced adoption era, I suppose, in Australia, where yeah. it peaked was between the fifties and the seventies. Yes, uh, I would recommend for yeah a listen if you're thinking of something else to listen to. Besides us. Besides um, us, yes. I've seen a, I think they did an ABC documentary around that, like, and it was very big in Newcastle. Um, we, and I was born in Newcastle and I'm adopted. I was born in 1975. So a lot of the stuff I saw was like this parallel between, mm. I wonder if that was kind of still going on. And I've got all of my kind of records from my birth mother so I got access to all of my records and yeah it was it was just not even a question that she would have to give me up and my Mm. sister um, and then we had there's other siblings as well basically she was sent to a women's kind of refuge and it was just 
no question. Yes, um, yes. That the baby would be taken yep. um, without any sort of say. Um, that's very close to my heart. So mm. I'm listening. Yes, listen. T- give it a listen. Um, I'm really enjoying, really enjoying it. I find as distressing as that part of history is, I find it really interesting and really fascinating mm-hmm. because there's a link in my family as well. Oh, well, not a verified link, I've got to say. I'm still working through that. But something that can definitely be uh, learned from a yeah. part of history that should never be repeated, the things Absolutely. that happened to those. And, you know, I could I could go on about this forever, but there's – I'm not sure if you have heard of The Family and Hamilton Byrne. Did you see that doco? Yeah, and there's a new series called The Clearing, which is – is that, oh, is that based on? Yes, based you're on right. That. It is based on her. Mm. Um, so there's a bit that touches on forced adoption too, and there was some really underhanded and dirty dealings done during that time. But just talking about forced adoptions, I've just read an article today uh, that the ABC put out about priests fathering children. So oh. I'd recommend giving that a read. It's really interesting. Okay. Again, the same time period we're sort of looking at the 50s 60s 70s Mm. um but that's a really interesting part of history and adoption history as well okay yeah that's it's pretty dark way to start but anyway (laughs) great dark recommendations Mm, yes yes. always keeping it light yeah absolutely (laughs) so I know last season I told you a little bit about monuments and how underrepresented women were in, particularly in Victoria, well, in Australia, but in Victoria as well, how underrepresented they were. Um, Mm -hmm. So some good news on that. This is a little, just a a good news factoid story. Oh, a little update. A little update. So in late May of this year, a monument of Zelda de Prano was unveiled after the tireless work by many trying to increase the number of women honoured and recognised in public memorials. And as I said last season, um, there were, when I told you this information last season, so late 2021, there were only nine monuments in Victoria that were of women out of 580 statues. So a little bit about Zelda. She was a feminist activist a trade unionist and a comrade of the working class. She did many things during her life which included organising women to ride on trams and only pay 75% of the fare because they were, you know, pay parity. Yeah. Uh, She joined pub crawls to protest women's exclusion from bars. Yes. There was always a ladies' lounge, which you might still see. Like if you go to some old country pubs still, you would still see. And that might be used as a ladies' lounge, but it might be known as a ladies' lounge. You might see the signage. Absolutely. And Zelda was best known for chaining herself to the Commonwealth Building to protest the Federal Arbitration Commission's failure to deliver equal pay. So that's what her monument represents. Uh, I would highly recommend checking out Zelda and many more women um, via Instagram. um, That handle is put her name on it. And just a couple of weeks ago um, there was a monument finally erected to Vivian Bullwinkle, who was a nurse during the Second World War um, at the Australian War Memorial. So that's been a huge, uh, huge coup as well. So I would recommend checking Put Her Name on it. They're 
They're doing some amazing work and a few other historians and uh, women in the field. I know Julia Gillard was there to do the unveiling as Mm. well of Zelda's statue, but there's so many more women that can be recognised in yeah. in many forms but in this way as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. To, to even up that bloody massive gap, like 500 mm. and something compared to five. Like I know. It's incredible. I know. There's more, um, I don't know if it's in Australia or if it's in England, there's more um, animals than, yeah. Yeah. Uh, than women represented in monuments. Come on, statue makers. Come on. What are you doing? Which are amazing in themselves. Like, yeah. Oh, Oh, arty people. Mm. (laughs) Arty people. Arty people. Mm. (laughs) I can crochet though, guys. (laughs) Did a cross stitch last year. Good Mm -hmm. to know. Good to know. Yeah. (laughs) The pandemic made us do lots of weird things. I know. It really did. It's got lots to answer for. So a couple of weeks ago I did uh, Ruth Handler, which we all know is the inventor of Barbie. I have since then gone and seen the movie, which is amazing. And it isn't what you think, or maybe it is now because so many people are talking about it, but it's just such an amazing view, lens to to see women, the patriarch, the – just, it just, it's it's amazing. It's amazing, and um, Ruth does kind of feature in it, tiny little bit, uh, and they don't really go too far into her story. So, if you have seen Barbie, go back and listen to our episode on Ruth um, Handler because it will give you a little bit more context and information about her in particular. Even though she is in the in the film a little bit, but. It'll give you a bit more info. So in keeping with kind of things that are very on trend at the moment. That's us, on trend. On on trend, (laughs) we so are. Uh, I decided this week, um, I'm going to go off piste a little bit, but (laughs) I've got, got I do have one woman in particular I want to talk about, but there's not much known about her. Um, But I am going to tell you today all about the history of women's football. Love it. Very on trend. Soccer, as we like to call it here in Australia, although that's changing to football. And I think in America they call it soccer as well. Yes. And soccer, here's a little factoid for you. Soccer is actually um, an abbreviation. It is an abbreviation because in Britain football is rugby. Yes. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, that's wrong. Hold on. But, yeah, so they've got rugby and then they've got football. And we know it as soccer because it was abbreviated from the word association, essentially. Oh, really? Mm, that's there a you very, go. very, you know, cut down explanation. Yes. But, yes, that's, yes. Yes, yes, that's where it came from. Oh, there you go. There you Love go. Love it. So, um, yeah, so while, so while I do mention uh, one woman in particular, this episode's kind of more about just the history of women's um, women's soccer, women's football. Um, so the first recorded history of women's uh, football stretches back to the 18th century, although variations of football or soccer go back as far as um, go back so far as early Chinese dynasties. So apparently, Chinese women back in the Chinese dynasty days, way, way, way back, 
were playing some sort of game that that did sort of resemble um, football or soccer. And also, let's not forget, a lot of Indigenous cultures also would have their own sort of forms of of types of games like these. Mm -hmm. So when we do go into this story, it's kind of more about just the reported um, facts that we know of kind of within the colonised world. Mm -hmm. In 1726, the Ipswich Journal of Suffolk reported a match played by six young women signalling the sport's presence even before modern football took shape. And in the late 18th century, the Scottish town of Musselburg held annual matches between married and unmarried women, showcasing the game's early variations. So across Scotland there was a tradition of these matches that would happen in villages where married women would take on unmarried women. (laughs) What a single woman. Right, okay. (laughs) As a way for the male onlookers to select a bride. (gasps) Of course. Sorry. I don't know why I'm shocked. (laughs) So fast forward to the late 1800s and the first recorded international women's football match was played in Edinburgh, Scotland, where in 1881 an English team faced off against a Scottish team and that set the stage for women's football to emerge on a larger scale. The first game, uh, however, wasn't played by sportswomen or experienced footballers. It was a group of um, theatre businessmen and entrepreneurs who decided to put on a different kind of show to the theatre performances that they were had usually organised. So they decided to come up with a football game. So it was kind of like a novelty and it was a type of theatre. So the game took place at the home of Scottish Football Club Hibernian in the Scottish capital of Edinburgh and featured a team representing English women and a team representing Scotland. Many of the women were dancers and performers. The English team was made up of members of Lizzie Gilbert's Juvenile Ballet Company and the Scottish team from the Royal (laughs) Princess Theatre a house company in Glasgow, Scotland. So the first game really essentially was played by ballet dancers. Excellent. Uh, well, they were nimble, I suppose. Exactly, mm. exactly. Now the Scottish women went on to win the game 3-0, mm-hmm. with Lily St. Clair becoming the first woman ever to score an officially recorded football goal. Well done, Lily. Good work, Lily. Uh, In a report following the match, the Glasgow Herald described the Scottish team as looking smart in blue jerseys, white knickerbockers, red belts and high-heeled boots. Oh, can you imagine? I don't know how many ankles you'd roll in those things. Oh, my gosh, of course. Um, Another game followed a few days later, this time in Glasgow. However, it had been abandoned when hundreds of men ran onto the pitch. The players escaped on a bus drawn by four horses amid chaotic scenes of vandalism and fighting between spectators and police. There were grumblings that the novelty women's matches had no place in a man's game. Mm-hmm. They are quite happy to find a wife though. Quite happy to find a wife. Well, look, if they're finding a wife and then they get the chance to punch on afterwards, that's just... Well, it's a day at the pub, isn't it? Mm. Just... <laughs> Just another day at the park. <laughs> the turn of the century brought the formation of the British Ladies Football Club or the BLFC in 1895. It was a significant step forward for the sport. This came uh, after medical professionals called for girls and women to be banned completely from playing. 
However, some determined characters refused to be denied a sport that they were passionate about and so the first official women's football club was born. Now, the football club was led by a woman named Nettie Honeyball. That is a fabulous name. Which is a fabulous name. Now, um, and the club aimed to challenge gender stereotypes and promote the idea that women could excel in sports. Now, not to burst your bubble because I know how much you love that name, Mm -hmm. but it has to be said that there is suggestions that her name was in fact a pseudonym (gasps) and not her real name. I know. Can you? It just its so good though. I know. And some people believe that her real name was Mary Hudson. Oh, have quite hairy and so boring. <laughs> quite the same ring. <laughs> so while I was sort of starting to research this and try to was trying to do a lot of research into, you know, the first woman to play football, the first woman to, um, you know, score a goal or whatever. This Nettie kept coming up. This woman, um, purely because she did she did form the club um, mm-hmm. with help from someone called Lady Florence Dixie mm-hmm. who had the money. So basically, basically she went to her. She was kind of um, middle to high class and mm-hmm. um, she worked with Nettie to kind of form this club, the BLFC. So Nettie began placing newspaper adverts for players for her team uh, and she described football as a manly game that could be womanly as well. Hmm. Okay. So Nettie persuaded J.W. Julian, who played for Tottenham Hotspur, to coach the women. The training sessions took place twice a week at a park next to the Alexandra Park race course at Hornsey. In 1895, Nettie gives an interview to the Daily Sketch where she explains the reason why she established the football club. So she says, I founded the association late last year with the fixed resolve of proving to the world that women are not only the ornamental and useless creatures men have pictured. I must confess my convictions on all matters where the sexes are so widely divided are all on the side of emancipation and I look forward to the time when ladies may sit in parliament and have a voice in the direction of affairs, especially those which concern them the most. So God love her. She was a, mm. she was a little trailblazer and um, you know a feminist, and using this as an avenue to kind of you know say again to try to bring in that equality. Um, although the exploits of the British Ladies Football Club were regularly reported in the national and local press during 1895, surprisingly, there's little personal information given about Nettie Honeyball. And I searched high and low. Nothing. Nettie's Nothing. flying under the radar. There was a few different kind of articles that I found and one kind of paper that had been written by a historian, but even then there was lots of things that were still questionable. But they do say that at the time of the first public appearance, her first public appearance in 1895, her dress was given as um, Crouch End, North London. She mm-hmm. reportedly had a brother who accompanied the ladies on the UK tour and act, who acted as an organiser and occasional spokesman. Photographs of her show a young woman aged about 24 to 30 of above average height. And as she revealed in an interview to the Daily Graphic, scaling 11 stone. Um, and Weird side fact, but there is a suspicion of a defect in her left eye, possibly even an artificial eye. Oh, lordy. (laughs) 
So that's all we know. That's really all we know about Nettie. Oh, Nettie. Um, but that's not the that's not the end of the story for women's football. Um, now she was said to be also a really good PR person, and because of her, um, and that she was so good at promoting the game and the women's match, their first match by the BLFC was, which was in 1895, had an attendance of over 12,000 people. Wow. That's a lot for, yeah, that's a lot of people now, but that's a lot for then. Isn't Mm. it? So this first official match played by women took place at Crouch End in London. The girls were organised into teams that represented North and South London. The Manchester Guardian reported their costumes came in for a good deal of attention. One or two added short skirts over their knickerbockers. Ooh, racy. (laughs) And the negative press just kept on coming. Shocker. The Daily Sketch reported, the first few minutes were sufficient to show that football by women, if the British British ladies to be taken as a criterion, is totally out of the question. A footballer requires speed, judgment, skill and pluck. Not one of these four qualities was apparent on Saturday. For the most part, the ladies wandered aimlessly over the field at an ungraceful jog trot. I jog trot. That's how I. It's a jog trot. Jog trot waddle. Is that what all footballers do on the jog trot? Yeah. Now the Jarrow Express also reported the members of the British Ladies Football Club have played their first match in public. We hope severely it will be their last. Oh. There will always be curiosity to see women do unwomanly things. And it is not surprising that the match was attended by a crowd numbering several thousands, very few of whom would like to have their own sisters or daughters exhibiting themselves on the football field. Some of these young persons appeared to possess only an elementary knowledge of the game and its laws, and for the present, at all events, the club is quite unlikely to attract spectators for the sake of the play. How long will it continue to attract them for reasons unconnected with sport is another matter. But it is significant that a considerable proportion of those present left the field at halftime. The laughter was easy and the amusement was rather coarse, but these are waning delights and we shall be surprised if a second display wins even so equivocal a success as the first. So you can imagine, right, you've got every single newspaper just bloody going off about how crap they were Um, and even though some would say that that first game was a success in terms of the numbers and the people who attended, of course the rise of women's football also brought with it some uh, resistance and the game was starting to be condemned by the male Mm. establishment. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, supported by the British Medical Journal, which published an article condemning women who played football. We can in no way sanction the reckless exposure to violence of organs which the common experience of women had led them in every way to protect. So keep the lady bits safe so they can keep having the babies. You've got to keep the lady bits safe. I mean, Mm. God, I remember even I think back in the first or second season, just running 
like like they're athletes, like women runners, they thought that your our uterus was going to fall out. Mm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on, people. So popularity of the game begins to wear off and the games end up drawing only a handful of spectators. The novelty is definitely wearing off. So after a short tour, uh, Nettie's group returns home back to London and it seemed that the first attempt to popularise women's football has come to an end. But... There's always a but. There's always a but. It's not the end of the story. We know. Things start to pick up again in the early 20th century. As we know, Europe soon descends into a world war and young British men are signed up in their thousands to join the war effort and fight. So while British women weren't fighting in the trenches, they did join the war effort. England's factories making weapons and materials for war were packed to the rafters with female workers. They worked in terrible conditions with dangerous machinery and chemicals. So the UK government realised that they needed these female workers to be healthy. So they started encouraging them to take part in sports, both for their physical fitness and as a break or distraction from the First World War. Factories started to set up women's football teams and play games against each other. The most famous of these clubs was Dick Kerr and Co's <laughs> Ladies a, Football Club. That's a very British name, isn't it? Dick Kerr and Co. Mm. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I mean, I am childish, but just that the, the <laughs> women's football club is called Dick. Anyway. <laughs> So, yes, and that was founded in 1917. Uh, In December 1917, the team from Dick Kerr's factory challenged the ladies of the nearby Arundel Foundry to a charity match. It was the first of 828 games for the Dick Kerr ladies. uh, As over the decades, they scored more than 3,500 goals and raised the equivalent of $1 million for an array of charities. These games attracted over 53,000 men, women and children who would come and watch these charity matches. So by the 1920s, ladies football uh, became a major spectator sport. Mm -hmm. That's a huge number. Yeah. Huge. Huge, right? But away from the cheering terraces, the establishment of professional men's football viewed the mass popularity of women's soccer as something to challenge. Mm. And on the 5th of December 1921, the Football Association met in London and after a brief debate behind closed doors, it unanimously passed an urgent resolution, women's football must be banned from all professional grounds. Of course. Motherfuckers. Like no one else can succeed. Women can't usurp the um... They just got their knickers in a knot. Mm. Like who are we, why? Like what's the, who are we threatening Mm. by playing a bloody game of football? God, mad. So while they couldn't ban women playing at all, they just stopped any women's team playing on a football association ground. So this meant there were now very few places for women's teams where they could play and the game 
obviously struggled. The real reasons for the ban have been debated by historians for years. Prejudice and discrimination are clear factors, obviously, and many of the the officials just simply believe that football was a game for men and men only. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a lot of other things. Yes. But the Dick Kerr ladies did not give in, playing their matches on parkland with thousands of spectators turning up to watch. But constant pressure from the FA meant that one by one, teams began to fold. It would take until 1971 for FA to lift its ban and saw the organisation of the unofficial Women's World Cup. 50 years later. Half a century. That is just like, yeah. <sighs> Like when I Gosh. when I was when I was researching this, I I can't believe that. Like, I seriously, fifty years. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I know, speechless. Yeah, that's no, no amazing, no amazing that it would take that long. I know, I know. So women were embracing sport and football all over the world, not just in the UK. We focused a lot on the UK, but a famous example is a woman by the name of Irene Gonzalez, a Spanish woman who played as a goalkeeper for a club that she founded herself in the 1920s. She played for men's clubs before starting the Irene Football Club, F-U-T-B-O-L Club. All the players were male apart from her. She started her own club. Oh, good on her, though. The only woman, I know. In Brazil, there were over 10 women's teams playing regularly in the 1930s. Wow. Um, competitions were organised in France between 1917 and 1933, and, and even Nigeria had a women's games in the 1940s. However, like the UK, many countries eventually banned women's football. Belgium banned the game from the 1920s until the late 1970s for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. Brazil banned it from 1941 until 1979 as football was considered incompatible with the conditions of their nature. Right. The lo- those lady bits again. Lady bits again. Mm. Uh, it was actually illegal for women to play football in France under the wartime Vichy government and the France Football Federation banned women until the 1970s. West Germany banned the game as it would damage women fertility and health. Mm. It was also banned in Norway, the Soviet Union, Nigeria, Spain and many more. God, just... <laughs> Right. So Italy became the first country to have part-time professional women's players. So Italian clubs began to hire players from other countries. And then finally in 1970, Italy hosted the Women's World Cup, although it was not an official FIFA-organised tournament. Mm -hmm. It was organised by an Italian organisation known as the Federation of Independent European Female Football or F-I-E-F-F. Teams from England, West Germany, Denmark, Mexico, Austria, Italy and Switzerland travelled to Italy to play in the tournament. Most of the teams were not official as women's football was still banned in some most of those places at the time. But they played anyway. Yeah, good on them. It took another 20 years before FIFA organised the first official Women's World Cup which took place in China in 1991. So we wow. are talking 
70, 70 years after there was 53,000 people turning up to watch football games, we'll ban it and we won't bring it back officially until 1991. They were still undecided as to whether or not to call it a World Cup, so it was officially known as the first FIFA World Championship for women's football. Okay. Still Mm -hmm. couldn't call it the World Cup. God, I just... Despite the progress made, challenges in women's football still exist. Things like pay disparities, lack of opportunities are just still some of the obstacles that female players face. However, if the last few weeks are anything to go by, the future looks promising as women's football continues to gain traction with increased investment, exposure and support. So this is why even a lot of those women, a lot of women watching football at the moment would have no idea Mm. about this history and that it's taken 70 years for us to be recognised as official teams. So no wonder it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. Do you know, like it's, like I get it. It's just, it's incredible. So, yeah, this will come out and we won't know what the outcome is that would have happened already. So I hope that we were able to look into the future and that Australia won. But even if we don't mm. win, the fact that there was a World Cup for women, it's being recognised, we're selling out stadiums, you know, 75,000 people, you know, in for the Sydney game. I'm not sure how many, what the capacity was the other night on Saturday, but, oh, my gosh, you know, so important to support women's football, women's mm. sport and women in general. Mm. But even, you know, young girls seeing other women being able to do these things as well so the next generation can step up and know that they can do whatever they want. So now it is. It's about pay equality. Same with the um, the Australian netball team. Didn't we just win the netball? Yeah, yeah. And where is that being reported? They reported yeah. that they won but there's no. Where is that being shown? Yeah, where is it yeah. being shown or exactly. recognised? Exactly, exactly. So there you have it. That's just the story of women's uh, football and the more I researched that, the more angrier I got and I had absolutely no idea that, yeah, 70 years had to pass Mm. before we were officially recognised. So thank you to Nettie Honeyball. Thank you, Nettie Honeyball. And also Lady Florence Dixie. So... And also all of the other women all around the world mm. who formed their own teams and just kept on, you know, fighting to have a seat at the pitch. Pitch. Yeah. We know things about sport. Pitch. There yeah. You go. It. Yeah. So uh, that's it. It's another week, another another chick story done and dusted. Uh, if you mm-hmm. liked what you heard, even if it did make you angry, please rate, review, subscribe, press all the things, and we'll be back next week. Phoebe will have a brand new story, a brand new chick for us to get angry about. Yeah. We'll see you then. See Bye. you then.